we have a saying, when uh, something is impossible, we call it, you can't get blood from a turnip. Well, the title of my message this morning is, God can, and uh, he calls it, I'm going to give you water from a rock. So if you'll turn to Exodus chapter 17, I want to read the uh, first seven verses, and it'll give us a a good kickoff here for this morning. It says, Then all the congregation of the sons of Israel journeyed by stages from the wilderness of sin according to the command of the Lord, and camped at Rephidim, and there was no water for the people to drink. Therefore the people quarreled with Moses and said, Give us water that we may drink. And Moses said to them, Why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? But the people thirsted there for water, and they grumbled against Moses and said, Why now have you brought us up from Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? So Moses cried out to the Lord, saying, What shall I do to this people? A little more, and they will stone me. Verse 5, Then the Lord said to Moses, Pass before the people and take with you some of the elders of Israel, and take in your hand your staff with which you struck the Nile and go. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and water will come out of it that the people may drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel, He named the place Massah and Meribah because of the quarrel of the sons of Israel and because they tested the Lord, saying, Is the Lord among us or not? All right, so we see that the Israelites here are journeying towards the mountain of God. They haven't quite made it there yet, but they get to this point uh, in Rephidim, it's the name of the area, and there's no water there. So they start um, quarreling with Moses, rebuking him, really. Uh, you know, the people are, you know, really against Moses. But really, the behavior of the people really showed very little about how much they've really learned from the past events. Uh, that, you know, that God has been kind to them uh, ever since they uh, were led out of Egypt. But here, they, they hassle Moses. They blamed him for bringing them into this situation. And really, it's very unfair towards Moses because, you know, if they recognize that Moses didn't do anything with them that God hadn't told him to do. But they don't, uh, they don't really uh, attack God, so they go about this indirect way, and they attack Moses because they know very well they're not going to be able to uh, 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 rebuke God. So, and, and that's kind of the way we do it. You know, uh, you know mankind, we, we, we don't necessarily go after God, so we'll use someone else or an, ex, uh, an experience maybe, and we'll blame that. But in reality, we're blaming God. So we see a kind of an example of that here in the indirect way that they're murmuring against God and they're, uh, you know, they're rebelling really against him. So uh, because of this harassment, uh, that's how this area gets, this, uh, this community, this area uh, gets its name, Mirabah and Massa. 
okay? And that's in verse 7. And they're really asking Moses for the impossible here. Give us water to drink. They knew full well that Moses himself couldn't give them water to drink. There was none to give. It wasn't as though there was a small well and they wanted more. There was none. There was no water there. So they uh, spoke to Moses. They didn't go to God, but they spoke to Moses. So what does Moses do? Moses goes to God and, uh, you know, kind of, you know, he addresses God. Uh, but in a, in, and they don't really, in their tone, they don't really ask uh, Moses for water. They really demand it. Give us water to drink. There's no please or would you or, you know, it's like they're, they're making a, the, a demand for it. So in their, in their demand here, this is in verse 7, if you take a look at it close, this is really the spirit of unbelief that God accuses them of. Uh, and we're going to see this throughout Scripture. This example here that happens uh, in these verses is what is repeated throughout Scriptures uh, as the spirit of unbelief. Uh, and it's, uh, we'll get to some of those verses in a little while as well. But here, what, what we see is, it says that they tested the Lord, saying, Is the Lord among us or not? So, um, they didn't believe that water could be provided for them. So they taunted Moses here, and then they also said, or Moses knows they're going to kill him. They're going to stone him if they don't get water and get it pretty quick. So they were under, um, you know, this was another indication of their unbelief. Uh, they didn't believe there was going to get water, and they didn't really know for sure if God was with them. Is God with us or not? So, you know, twice before this occasion here, God had provided uh, uh, miracles for them. And we're not talking about the uh, plagues in Egypt. We're talking about the deliverance from the Egyptians. Remember when they're getting about ready to cross the Red Sea? And then earlier than this, uh, when they get uh, manna from heaven. So twice God has provided for them. Uh, and, uh, you know, so now all of a sudden they think that he's not going to be able to provide for them. Is the Lord among us or not? All right. So uh, they didn't really know whether they could trust God with giving them water. But when you look at it, this is really part of God's plan, uh, because what we'll see here is he's going to expose the Israelites' hearts uh, to themselves. And it really shows them the power of this evil heart of unbelief. And that's repeated in uh, Hebrews 3.12. Uh, you don't need to go there. But that evil heart of unbelief is what he calls it. From this instance here, the Hebrew writer brings up this instance and says they had an evil heart of unbelief um, and, and that would provoke them to depart from the living God. And that's in Hebrews 3.12, by the way. So we today have got to be aware that that evil heart of unbelief is possible for us. It, they, they weren't in a vacuum there, and they weren't acting as though you know, they were uh, separate from all humanity. That evil heart of unbelief can strike us as well. We've got to remember uh, that God is still where, there, and he is among us. So they were going to stone Moses here, uh, verse 4, and Moses recognized it. So he did the right thing. He went straight to God. And then in verses 5 and 6, it talks about the deliverance. 
God, just as before, uh, in other ways, grants the supply of the people's needs here. In Psalm 78, you don't need to turn there, but I'll refer to it a couple of times. Uh, in verses uh, 15 and 16, he says in the psalm, He split the rocks in the wilderness and gave them abundant drink like the ocean depths. He brought forth streams also from the rock and caused waters to run down like rivers. And then in Isaiah 48, Isaiah said, They did not thirst when he led them through the deserts. He made the water flow out of the rock for them. He split the rock and the water gushed forth. So God is really showing his kindness towards them, and they didn't necessarily deserve it. Uh, you know, it's very clear uh, that the people had forgotten his previous works, and uh, now all of a sudden they're doubting who he is and that he's got the power to be able to provide for them. He gives them the water. He does not rebuke them for their, uh, their treatment towards Moses. Uh, you know, he doesn't return evil for evil uh, because that's, you know, really what, he, what they deserved. But it's the same kindness that God shows us in the gospel as well in the New Testament. He's bringing this, the same uh, attribute of himself uh, forward. Uh, and then we also saw in Psalm earlier, and then I'm going to read a couple of verses as well from Psalm 78, that the, the gift that he gives them here, this water, it was plentiful. In uh, verses uh, in 78, 20, he says, Behold, he struck the rock so that the waters gushed out, and streams were overflowing. Can he give bread also? Will he provide meat for his people? And then in Psalm 105, verse 41, says, He opened the rock and water flowed out. It ran in dry places like a river. So in many places here we're seeing, uh, in, uh, whether it be um, Psalms or, or Isaiah, uh, that this instance is, is brought out many, many times. And we're going to see the significance of that in a moment. So if we return back to Exodus 17, what we see is God telling Moses, he says, I want you to take some of the elders with you. Uh, and obviously... Uh, he's taking the elders with him as eyewitnesses because they're going to record this for posterity and he, he wants to make sure that there's eyewitnesses to this event because this event is uh, very, very important for us today. Uh, and, and we'll see that. And he also tells Moses to make sure that you take that rod with you. That rod was a symbol of divine authority and it was a symbol of, of power as well. And it says the same rod or the same rod that you used to um, to strike the um, uh, the Nile. And then in verse six, he says, "The rock you are to strike the rock." All right. So, if you remember that this this command is actually given uh, or the instances repeated again in um, Numbers uh, chapter uh, 20. And that, in that instance, remember that God tells Moses, there was another one, another instance, they don't have any water. This is after their situation going into the, 
uh, spy out the land. Uh, they come back, the 10 spies with bad report, two spies with good report. Um, they murmur uh, against Moses. Again, why have you brought us out here to kill us? Uh, uh, plague uh, breaks out, uh, and then that gets quell, uh, quenched. And then Miriam dies. And then they start murmuring again. They need water. And then God tells Moses, he says, I want you to go to the rock, and I want you to speak to it. All right, Kate. So that act is significant, and, and it's related to this one here. So uh, in this one in Exodus, the splitting open is what allows the water to flow. It's the initial act of the water flowing from the rock. As contrasted with the one in Numbers 20, where it's a renewal. Okay. So I want you to keep these thoughts in mind because it's going to be, it's going to play out in a picture that God is trying to show to us here. So in this one in Exodus, the rock was supposed to be struck. And it was the same rod that, uh, that Moses used to strike the Nile back in, uh, in Exodus chapter 7. In other words, it was a way that the water was going to be brought forth was by an act of violence. God didn't tell him to tap it. He says, I want you to strike it hard. He didn't say hard, but when, when he says strike the rock, you have to believe that Moses wailed at it pretty good. So this is where it all kind of comes together. Where else in Scripture have you seen something struck and water flows? Where else in scripture have you seen something struck with a rod or maybe a spear and water flows? Crucifixion. Crucifixion. Absolutely. The water in both cases provides life. The first one, physical. The second one, spiritual. So do we see Christ on the cross there being struck with the rod or spear? and water and blood flowing out. So back in Numbers 20, why was it such a harsh penalty for Moses to be kept out of the promised land for just disobeying a command from God? It w he did, okay, not, not, not giving him a pass on that. But it's because Moses was destroying the picture that God wanted us to see. The picture that God was painting was that the second time was a renewal. That Moses was supposed to speak to the rock. So if we were to bring that to the New Testament times, Christ on the cross when he was struck and the water came out, that's the initial striking of the rock. And he was. He was called the rock in the, in the desert that followed them. After that, 
God didn't want, there wasn't supposed to be a second crucifixion. There wasn't supposed to be a second striking. The second time the uh, water from the rock was a speaking. Or how about a confession? That at our conversion, that we are supposed to confess Christ and not faith only type, you know, confess and, you know, ask Jesus in your heart. But confession is part of our uh, conversion. So uh, in John 4, verse 10, Jesus says to the woman at the well, If you knew the gift of God and who it was that says to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living waters. Asked and he would have given it to you. Okay, so the second one is an asking. It's a speaking uh, to the rock. So it's a spiritual uh, teaching here, uh, and that rock points to Christ. In 1 Corinthians 10, uh, what Paul says, it says they all drank the same spiritual drink, for they were drinking from a spiritual rock which followed them, and the rock was Christ. So uh, in that Corinthian passage there, the apostle calls the water spiritual drink even the manna, as was spiritual meat. Now, we can actually extend that uh, picture, if you will, just a little bit more. Think of Christ striking the rock of our hearts, our hardened hearts. With that wooden staff that he had, that cross. All right? So... Uh, and then that would cause those living waters to flow from it. And John 7, verse 37 says, Now on the last day, the great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out, saying, If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scriptures said, from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. So all Christians had at one time, before they became a Christian, the heart of stone, uh, as the prophet Ezekiel says in verse, uh, chapter 36. Moreover, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. All right, so if we go back to Exodus 17 uh, now. And it says in verse 7 that they tested the Lord saying, Is the Lord among us or not? So the uniqueness of this uh, situation here at Rephidim, we've got to really uh, take note here. It, as I mentioned earlier, it's the primary one that is uh, referred to, alluded to in the rest of scriptures. In Deuteronomy 6, it's repeated. Uh, Moses tells them, he's repeating their history back to him. He says, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test as you tested him at Massa. And then in Psalm 95, do not harden your hearts as at Mirabah, as in the days of Massa in the wilderness, when your fathers tested me. They tried me, though they had seen my work. They, they saw what God had done, but they still wanted to test him. And then in Hebrews 3, verses 8 and 9, do not harden your hearts as when they provoked me, as in the day of trial in the wilderness where your fathers tried me by testing me and saw my works for 40 years. And then back to Psalm 78. 
uh, verses 18 and 19. It says, and in their hearts, that's key, in their hearts, they put God to the test by asking food according to their desire. So they tempted God in their hearts by asking uh, for meat, manna, for water. So when we compare the different, uh, the scripture references um, to this sin here of tempting or testing, it's found that in both the Old Testament and the New Testament, it's connected with the idea of proposing tests to God. So what do I mean by that? Okay, proposing tests by God. So of putting him in some, in, in some way um, to prove himself by setting up conditions that basically says, okay, I want you to answer this question for me, God. Are you uh, still deserving of my trust and obedience? You know, in Matthew 16, where the, uh, where the people ask for a sign, that's basically the, uh, the, the same thing that in their heart, they were really testing God. In that case, they were testing Christ. They were, it was a sign-seeking spirit in their, in their hearts that they wanted to uh, know whether, uh, whether God uh, was going to be worthy of their obedience or not. So uh, it's in short here, the spirit that requires from God proofs of his faithfulness and love uh, over and above the things that he's already done for us. Do me one more thing, and, and then I'll believe. So, back in, uh, in Exodus 17, uh, verse 6 here, you know, he's, he's talking about um, uh, the water, the rock. But, you know, in, when we put all of these things together, the book of John, the gospel of John, is really great, because in that in just that one book, Jesus brings all of the antitypes forward to the type, which is himself. He um, brings them all forward. In John chapter 1, he's called the true lamb of God, the true lamb of God, uh, Passover lamb. In chapter 2, he represents himself as the true temple. In chapter 3, as the true brazen serpent. In chapter 6, as the bread of heaven. Chapter 7, as the true rock. And in chapter 8, as the true light serving, or the light giving cloud. So Jesus, in just the Gospel of John, is bringing all of those pictures that God had painted in the Old Testament and brought them forward and says, I'm the fulfillment of this, I'm the fulfillment of that. I'm the fulfillment of this one too, and don't forget about that one, and how about this one? So he is going through and bringing all of those forward and said, that's me. That's me too. This is, that one's me. Uh, so he's, he's, and he, it's for them, it's for us to help us to see that mosaic that God has put together all through the Old Testament, uh, as the Hebrew writer says, uh, that uh, in time past, uh, he spoke to us in many portions and in many ways. Those were the portions and in many ways that he's talking about. He's painted all these pictures to help us to see who the Christ is. So the points to be noted here are these, that, you know, that human nature is really, uh, it's, it's in a condition of thirst, okay? Uh, just like the Israelites here in the desert. Uh, it thirsts for satisfaction that it really cannot give 
uh, can't get, if you will, from the world. The world can't, do, can't provide it. Uh, you know, you can give man all that he wants in the world, but his soul is still thirsty. We see that examples uh, all around us. But it's only when the spiritual awakening really uh, comes that we realize that the true condition that we suffer from is a, is a separation from God. And when that happens, when we understand that, and we understand that that thirst that's within us can actually be quenched, that that we understand that uh, that thirst for pardon, that, that thirst for holiness, for a thirst for salvation can actually be quenched. You know, if man was just a natural being, then wouldn't it make sense that the things in the world being natural things, that that could, uh, that that could quench his thirst, you know, satisfy him? But it doesn't. You know, uh, Ecclesiastes 1, uh, Solomon opens it up in verse 8. He says, all things are wearisome. Man is not able to tell it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor is the ear filled with hearing. There is nothing in the world, Solomon says, that can satisfy mankind. Now, animals are easily satisfied. You know, you, 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 once they're satisfied with, with food and water, they go back to their rest. They're okay. Uh, and, and they don't need any more than that. But how different is mankind? Okay. You can, his bodily comforts might be abundantly met. His senses filled with immense pleasures. Imagination filled with gorgeous images. Whether it be music, sight, sounds, whatever. The intellect can gain a massive amount of knowledge, but nothing really satisfies the thirst of his spirit. Not in the world. Not going to happen. Christ is the satisfaction of his thirst. In John 7, 37, he says, If any man thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Christ understands the nature and intensity of the thirst that we have, and he promises to fulfill to fulfill it. Atonement was made for sins. You remember the uh, um, uh, one, one movie with Nicolas Cage and he, he steals the Declaration of Independence. At the very end of this show, uh, Harvey Cattell uh, is sitting with him uh, and he says, you know what? Somebody's got to go to prison. Well, you know, when we sin, somebody's got to pay the price. And Christ did that for us. Christ satisfies this thirst in virtue that he has been smitten for us. Atonement has been made. John 1, 29 says, He is the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. So Christ was smitten, he was struck on Calvary. Then in John 19, the one that we alluded to a little bit earlier, says, But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and immediately blood and water came out. So the waters of salvation are free, and they are plentiful. They're free. Isaiah 55, 1 says, Ho, everyone who thirsts comes to the water. And then in Revelation 22:17. 17, 
And let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who wishes for the water of life without cost. And then lastly, they're plentiful. And that's where we come in. Mark 16, 15. And he said to them, us, go into all the world and preach the gospel to all creation. All creation is thirsty. And through us, we can have that thirst for them quenched, but they've got to know how to be able to quench it. And that's our job. So go forth, quench the thirst.